Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande. Episode 6, Order and Disorder Along the New Border. I'm Brandon Seal. Antonio Zapata was hurting in 1838. As if it wasn't hard enough to be a single father raising four daughters, the oldest of which was only 15 years old, he was also now bankrupt. It's unclear if the government impounded his goods for violating their impossibly restrictive trade laws or whether they'd requisitioned them to support the 2,000-man-strong army that had taken up residence in the Rio Grande Villas following their defeat at the Battle of San Jacinto. And then the French blockade began. On April 16, 1838, French warships sailed into the ports of Tampico and Veracruz, demanding the repayment of the losses endured by a pastry chef near Mexico City during the instability of the previous decade. And the consequences of this war certainly weren't trivial for the residents of the Rio Grande. First, the blockade threatened to cut off their access to world markets. But second, and worse, the specter of war and the loss of tariff revenue occasioned by the French blockade forced the Mexican central government to levy new taxes in June of 1838, which hit the long-suffering residents of the Rio Grande Villas particularly hard. If Antonio Zapata was like other people in the Rio Grande Villas at this time, he heard his frustrations articulated most clearly by his former lawyer and surveyor, Antonio Canales. Canales had been born to a family of some means in Monterey, and he'd come to Camargo to make his name. Now 36 years old in 1838, he was a charismatic leader with a, quote, magnetic personality, end quote. Zapata had known Canales for 10 or 15 years by now, and had used him to purchase the nearly 20,000 acres worth of land that Zapata had acquired over the previous decade and lost in the previous year. It seems likely that Zapata and Canales also overlapped in their course of service in the local militia, of which Zapata was sort of the default commander by 1838. But by 1838, Canales had found his calling as a politician, most recently as a deputy in the Tamaulipas legislature, and then briefly as a senator for Tamaulipas at the federal level, where he earned a reputation as a radical federalist. He had even flirted with joining the Texians in their revolt against the centralist government in 1835, but pulled back when he began to suspect that the Texians' goal was independence, rather than a federalist reformation of Mexico at large. But now, he was loudly banging the drum of discontent within Mexico. Quote, National liberty has been destroyed, end quote. One of his broadsides from August of 1838 was headlined. Initially, at least, Zapata held back from fully endorsing Canales' rabble-rousing. I'm inclined to believe that Zapata wasn't an overly political man, or at least he wasn't just yet. I imagine him as being fundamentally more practical, because he had to be. Old Sombrero Mantecoso, as his Comanche enemies called him, was a son of the Monte, a man who had risen up by the sweat of his own brow to a position of real respect, and he wasn't about to risk all that now at his most financially vulnerable moment. Others were less reserved in their support for Canales, however. And among the most vocal of these was the 29-year-old José María Carvajal, who I mentioned briefly in the last episode. Carvajal was born in 1809 in San Antonio. His father had fought and perhaps died in the Battle of Medina, and it seems that little four-year-old José María and his mother were among those placed into La Quinta with the other wives and daughters of the defeated rebels in 1813. 
It shouldn't be a surprise to listeners of this podcast that that experience made the young Carvajal a radical anti-royalist and anti-centralist for the rest of his life. In 1832, at the age of 23, Carvajal married Maria del Refugio de León, the daughter of the wealthy founder of Victoria, Texas. And just a few years later, in 1835, the now 26-year-old Carvajal served in the Federalist State Legislature of Coahuila y Texas and was initially a rabid member of the so-called War Party in Texas. In October of 1835, he rounded up as many cattle as he could, drove them to New Orleans, sold them, and bought $35,000 worth of arms to bring back into Texas to face the imminent centralist attack. When a Mexican government schooner surprised him just as he was starting to unload in Lavaca Bay, however, Carvajal lost everything, for which he would never be reimbursed despite his attempts. But worst of all, Carvajal and his compatriots at Lavaca Bay were captured and carted off to prison in Matamoros, where he would spend two months in prison there in the infamous Casamata prison. Carvajal managed to escape, however, and was soon after elected to represent Victoria at the Texas Independence Convention at Washington on the Brazos. But Carvajal didn't go. He realized, like Canales, that the revolt in Texas had already gone a different direction. Carvajal had hoped that Texas might set off a more general Federalist revolt across Mexico, but an Anglo-dominated independent Texas he knew would have little concern for the fate of the rest of Mexico. Yet I want to make clear too that Carvajal was by no means anti-Anglo. Indeed, if anything, Carvajal might have been the most gringified, anglicized Tejano in the state at the time. You see, as a youth, Carvajal had been something of a prodigy, something which Stephen F. Austin had noticed very early on. The childless Austin took on the fatherless Carvajal and basically adopted him. At the age of 15, Austin sent little Jose Maria to Kentucky for schooling, where they apparently pronounced his name Hosemura, which for some reason makes me smile. In Kentucky, Hosemura worked for a brief period as a saddle maker, carrying on that centuries-old San Antonio leatherworking tradition, and then he went for one more year of schooling at a seminary in Virginia. During his years in the United States, Carvajal acquired a native fluency in English, a radical Protestantism, and an uncompromising admiration for Anglo-American political ideals. After the Battle of San Jacinto, with the massacres at the Alamo and Goliad still fresh on most Texians' minds, this wasn't enough to protect José María Carvajal. Despite the fact that Carvajal actually had a brother who died at Goliad, Carvajal and many of his in-laws were marched to the coast at gunpoint and loaded onto a ship for Louisiana. Incredibly, however, this didn't seem to engender in him any particular bitterness toward Anglo-Texians. If anything, it only heightened his hatred of centralism in Mexico, and he soon relocated to Camargo in the Rio Grande Vias. The fiery 29-year-old's, quote, great intelligence, end quote, and his face, quote, like a Scotch terrier, end quote, quickly made an impression in his new hometown, not least of which upon Camargo's most prominent Federalist, Antonio Canales. They quickly befriended one another and began to follow developments in other parts of Mexico with interest. Because earlier that summer of 1838, a Federalist revolt had broken out in Sinaloa, on the other side of the country. Centralist forces had quickly quashed that revolt, but the movement didn't die. 
it simply transplanted itself to the other coast, to Tampico more specifically, which was suffering from the effects of the ongoing French blockade. On October 7, 1838, the army garrison in Tampico declared for the reestablishment of federalism. Canales and Carvajal sensed that this was their moment of opportunity. The closest centralist military commander to the Rio Granvillas was now all consumed with putting down the revolt in Tampico, which meant that he wasn't paying any attention to the town of Camargo. This was the moment, Canales in particular realized, to make some noise. In later years, Antonio Canales would earn the nickname El Zorro del Chaparral, or the Brush Fox, which seemed to suit well Canales' native cleverness, which he memorialized in the words, quote, Mientras la fuerza no pueda, que valga la justicia, end quote, which you could translate as, what force can't do, cunning can. And Canales was ready now to try a little bit of both. On November 3rd, 1838, Antonio Canales called a Federalist Convention of 22 delegates from throughout the Rio Grande Vias. He named the fiery Carvajal his chief of staff and secretary to the convention. The convention met in Camargo and resolved, quote, to perish first before continuing to be a toy for the army, end quote. And they sent notice of their resolution directly to the commanding centralist colonel. And then Canales, Carvajal, and their co-conspirators entered and took possession of the armory in Camargo. The same day, in a coordinated action, other co-conspirators did the same in Reynosa. This, of course, caught the commanding centralist colonel by surprise, but preoccupied as he may have been with the events in Tampico, he wasted no time in responding to Canales' provocation. But as that centralist colonel was closing in on Canales, Canales called another convention, this time on November 9th, inviting 38 representatives from Camargo, Reynosa, Mier, Guerrero, and Matamoros, including many of the commanders of the local militias, though not, we should note, Antonio Zapata. At that second November 9th convention, the 38 convened representatives declared their commitment to the Federalist cause, openly allied themselves with the rebels in Tampico, and resolved to sustain their cause until they should shed, quote, the last drop of their blood. End quote. Over the course of just six days, Canales had transformed heated rhetoric into an open revolt. And over the next few days, 500 volunteers from throughout the Rio Grande Vias marched into Canales' camp and joined their destinies to the Rio Grande Federalist cause. Of course, this 500-man mob wasn't nearly enough to face off against the centralist regulars descending now on Camargo. Canales, Carvajal, and the rest were forced to retreat north to the next town up the river, Guerrero, formerly known as Revilla, that ancient hotbed of federalism, hometown to Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara, and hometown, of course, to Antonio Zapata. Up until this point, Zapata had remained on the sidelines. Actually, the commanding centralist colonel had been in active communication with him, flattering him, reminding him of his officer's commission from the government, and promising him opportunities if he would remain loyal to the centralist government. As late as November 15th, Zapata was reciprocating, dutifully passing the centralist colonel updates on the rumors of Canales' movements. Zapata knew all too well by this point the consequences of defying the government, the same government which had just taken nearly everything he owned. 
And further, he wouldn't lightly commit his community, a community that had suffered so much in the last few years, to a course of frivolous bloodshed and suffering. It didn't matter how well he knew Canales or any of the others marching toward Guerrero now, Zapata was accountable to his pueblo, in both senses of the word, to his town and to his people. And it was altogether unclear to him that Canales and Carvajal, in all of their flowery proclamations, held out anything good for the residents of Guerrero. The scene was set for a showdown. A showdown, no less, between two rising stars of the Rio Grande Vias, Antonio Zapata of Guerrero and Antonio Canales of Camargo, the Sombrero Mantecoso and the Brush Fox, poised for a face-off. In reality, however, it wasn't so much of a face-off as it was a decision for Antonio Zapata to make. So far, it had been Antonio Canales pushing events along and getting the Rio Grande Federalist Revolt going. But it becomes clear the moment that Canales' army meets Zapata's irregulars outside of Guerrero that it's Zapata who held the future of the revolt in his hands. Because when Canales showed up outside of Guerrero with his 500-man mob, Zapata could have crushed him right then and there, or at least could have held him off long enough for the centralist colonel to arrive. Or, as he realized, and undoubtedly, as Canales realized, Zapata could let them pass into the safety of his town. Antonio Zapata, the mulatto son of a cowboy and a housemaid, was now the kingmaker in the Rio Grande Vias. But it was as clear to the commanding centralist colonel as it was to the rebellious Antonio Canales that Antonio Zapata was the man that they needed on their side. Indeed, I can't help but wonder if maybe the reason that Canales retreated to Guerrero was precisely so that he could seek out a conversation with Zapata. If he'd really thought he'd have to face off against Zapata militarily, he'd never have done it. No, I like to think that Canales was actually marching toward Zapata. And this is probably because Canales had the confidence that it wouldn't take much for him to appeal to Zapata's own frustrations. Canales and everyone else knew Zapata's strained financial situation. And so yes, Canales could have listed out for Zapata his grievances, the presence of an enormous centralist army that refused to actually defend their citizens against hostile natives and raiding Texians, the forced requisitions of private property required to support that army, the arbitrary prohibitions promulgated by the centralist commanders preventing residents of the Villas from even accessing their ranches north of the Rio Grande, and now new onerous taxes that promised to funnel more money out of the already poor Rio Grande Villas back into the centralist government that was so abusing them, etc., etc. But Zapata knew this. Zapata had experienced it personally. In the words of Antonio Zapata scholar J.J. Gallegos, Zapata's decision on November 18, 1838, to allow Canales safe passage into Guerrero and to join his substantial name to the Federalist cause, quote, was the result of a pragmatic federalism instead of an ideological one. The ideology of federalism provided the rationale for rebelling, but what motivated the rebellion against centralism was the adverse impact of its policies on the Villas, end quote. Going back to an earlier point, we actually have no evidence of Zapata's ideology in 1838, or if he even had one. But surely, Zapata could relate to Antonio Canales, to José María Carvajal, and to the other men in their party as neighbors, men with whom he'd shed blood in the defense of their communities since they were teenagers. And nothing like that could be said of the representatives of the centralist government. 
And so Antonio Zapata offered his sword once again in the service of his community, this time in the Federalist Revolt of 1838. Antonio Canales gave him a commission as a lieutenant colonel and gave him command, too, of all the mounted forces of the new Northeastern Federalist Revolt. In a region that so prized horsemanship, in which had perfected mounted warfare, this was the most esteemed military post that Canales could offer. Antonio Zapata accepted, rested for one day in Guerrero, said goodbye to his daughters and his neighbors, and on the next day, Canales, Zapata, Carvajal, and 500 or so others turned their retreat around and began marching south. Zapata rode now at the front of the column, and when on November 20th they rode into sight of the approaching centralist forces, it was Zapata and Canales who rode forward together to parley. The annoyed centralist colonel invited Canales and Zapata to come meet with him two days later at a ranch called El Puntiagudo. There, at the Rancho Puntiagudo, Antonio Canales eloquently presented his grievances. First, he asked the commanding centralist colonel to at least acknowledge the great risk to which he and the rest of his companions had exposed themselves by taking up arms in this way to articulate their concerns. The fact that they were willing to take such a desperate measure, he hoped, was proof to the centralist colonel that, quote, there remains for them no other recourse, end quote. Continuing, quote, legal channels had proven useless, end quote, and so his community had taken up arms, quote, only so that they might be heard, end quote. Their principal grievance, Canales clarified, was the new tax law of June 9th. How did the government expect a bunch of ranchers, who had, by the way, just now been forbidden from even accessing their ranches on the north side of the Rio Grande, to pay some new tax? Plus, the colonel knew as well as anybody that centralist soldiers had already requisitioned nearly everything that the poor Rio Grande Villas owned, even while still expecting those Villas to handle all the actual real fighting with the Comanches and Lipan Apaches that were raiding them. Enough was enough. Canales informed the commanding centralist colonel that he was going to give them 12 days to redress his complaints, or else the Rio Grande Villas would have no choice but to fight. The centralist colonel was not moved. He told Canales and Zapata and the rest of the Rio Grande Federalists to lay down their arms and return to their homes. At some level, Canales must have expected that this would be the result. Obviously, an army colonel stationed at the remote corner of Mexico couldn't change tax laws. And so maybe this was just all part of some theater to justify the larger revolt that Canales and now Zapata were planning. And if so, it was rather artfully done. Because unsurprisingly, 12 days later, the commanding centralist colonel had done nothing to redress Canales' complaints. And so, now fully justified, Antonio Canales, Antonio Zapata, and the Rio Grande Federalists launched themselves into open revolt against the centralist government of Mexico. Three things happened next. First, with the bilingual Carvajal's help, Canales wrote to the newly installed second president of the Republic of Texas, Mirabeau Lamar, and began lobbying him for men and resources to fight their old common enemy, the centralist government in Mexico City. Indeed, Canales' appointment of the San Antonio-born bilingual Carvajal was a nod to the role that he expected Texas to play in his plan. In fact, as early as July of 1838, Canales had sent agents to San Antonio 
putting out feelers to see how Texians felt about a revolt amongst their old sister states in the Northeast. He had found that Texians, individually at least, were quite sympathetic. What he was about to find out, however, was that that didn't necessarily translate into an official government position. Second, Canales and Zapata went to Tampico to meet with the other Federalist insurgent leaders gathering there, and they left with a clearer picture of their role in the larger movement. The Rio Grande Villas were theirs to protect and defend and to use as a provisioning base for supplies that might come from the Republic of Texas or from the United States. This secured for Canales and Zapata their role as regional leaders in what was quickly becoming a national movement within Mexico. And the third and last thing that happened next, and probably the most impactful, was that Antonio Zapata set off on one of the most remarkable cavalry campaigns in the history of the continent. On the next episode of The Republic of the Rio Grande. Thank you for listening. In February of 2022, we'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence for the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to Season 2 of this series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned corridos. Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library. And in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here and I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at Noso Media. That's N-O-S-O-Media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Vías del Norte, A History from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Vías del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesarino Hosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tapilan Coahuiltecan Nation, and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Come Crudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com. <laughs>